We do have a lot of things converging today on this, uh, on this day. We have Mother's Day, and in this service we're also going to have a baptism of Bethy Johnson, and we're going to have, hi Bethy, and we're going to have the reception of new members, and, and I was thinking, okay, so this sermon has to have everything somehow in it, but actually there is a common thread in all of these things. And I do want to try to, to pull that tr- thread together for you because I think it is providential that um, God orchestrates things in ways sometimes for us to be able to see correlations. My father worked uh, third shift for most of his life and my mother was the one that held the home together. He was gone at night. He would walk to his car about 9 o'clock and we wouldn't see him until the next day. And so she was the last one that would go to bed at night. She was the first one that was up every morning. The house was managed by my mother. She held it together. She kept it going. She processed the parts. She's still doing this now. She gave herself to all of these kinds of works that mothers give themselves to. I was thinking about in uh, preparing for this morning about all the people my mother has fed in her lifetime, and I wondered if she hadn't fed as many people as live in Bloomington, outside of our family, or maybe Monroe County. I thought, you know, 100,000 is too many, probably. But maybe the city of Bloomington. She's made so many meals and so many pies. If you watch her make a pie, it's like, it's weird, isn't it, Annie? It's like, pretty soon there's five pies. And there's a little bit of crust left over, and she makes a turnover or something out of it. But that's my mother. She worked, she cried, she suffered, she prayed for her charges. I remember her praying beside her bed. I remember looking through her bedroom door and watching her pray for her children. And so my mother is the point of closest connection in our family. She keeps everything together. I asked her yesterday, she called me, she was sitting in the Walmart parking lot watching people <laughs> because my brother had to go in and get something. And so she was watching people, she called me and uh, I said, Mom, can you come down and stay for a month? We'd love to have you come down and stay with us for a month. Well, she said, I, I don't think I can come down. She said, Gary just had his surgery and Dennis is about to have his surgery And so she gives me all the information. She connects me to everybody. And I realize, so finally I say to her, Mom, if I schedule a surgery, will you come down and stay with us? (laughs) And of course, she might actually do that if I did. I don't know. Maybe I'll go see her. So how do these things converge together in a theme? Well, the church, the church, we like to say the church is our mother, the church is like this in, the, in that God puts the church together as that place where we are held together, where we're, where we're finished off, where we're perfected, where the rough edges are ground off, where we're fitted together, where all the information and the communication happens, where he fills us with his spirit and where we live together, where we have life. And so the church is like this. And this morning we're going to look at that, but we're going to look at it through the, uh, the book of Ephesians, in particular Uh, particularly one passage we're going to get to as our specific text, which is chapter 4, verse 25. But I want to go through the book because I want you to see the progression as we come up to that chapter through the first chapters of the book. 
And so what you have to know about the book of Ephesians is it has two basic parts. Part one is the first half of the book, and it's the, I call it the have I got news for you half of the book, right? Have I got news for you? And so all the way through chapter four uh, into chapter, I don't know, where does the break? I think it's about 317. All the way through that, or 417, it's all Paul giving these, this account of God, the news. And then from then on, it changes. And it, it becomes the, therefore, there's something that you're going to have to do part. Have I got news for you? There's something you're going to have to do. And that's how it's divided. And so we want to go through the first part first because our scripture text is actually in chapter 4 at the beginning of the second part. So I want to give you an overview of Ephesians. So Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10 said, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, that is Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So God, the Holy Spirit, works through the Apostle Paul and he starts to communicate the work of God in the gospel in Jesus Christ. And he said, look, this is the summing up of everything. This is how things are getting summed up. God has redemptive history that he's been unfolding through time, but now Jesus has come and God's going to take all the threads and he's going to start putting them together in a tapestry. And we're going to see the picture, only it's not going to be a two-dimensional picture when we see it. It's not really going to be a tapestry. It's going to be a three-dimensional picture, and it's actually going to be a body. And we're going to see God's intention and his plan demonstrated in something that he makes through the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. So Paul starts off and says, look, God's summing everything up. It's all going to get summed up now. Then in chapter 1, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So everything is being subjective to Christ, particularly the church, which is this construction that God is making. It's his body. He's putting it together. And then as you go into chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, Paul starts talking about the fact that God used to only use Gentiles to, to deal with, or I'm sorry, Jews to deal with as his people, but now he's taking the Gentiles and the Jews, and he's taking the two of them, and he's reconciling them together because it's time for the summing up of everything. He's going to reconcile them together. He's opening up all the doors. He's bringing everybody in, and he's building one body out of the two separate groups. The Gentiles used to not be apart, but now they're apart. The nations are pouring in, and God pours his spirit on all flesh. And then in chapter 3, Paul starts talking about his own role, his personal role, because this is what I'm doing, this is what I've been called to. When I was in college and I read Ephesians chapter 3, that was a pivotal moment. Because I read and I felt that that was me. That was what I was supposed to do. I wasn't supposed to be the Apostle Paul. But I was supposed to declare this message. That was my job. And so I changed my major. And I went in the direction that brought me to be a pastor. Right? So Paul says, this is what God has done through me. He has made me the declarer of this thing. And he says, 
as God has called me to unfold this thing, he said, I preach this to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So now God is summing all things up. He's putting all things together under Christ in a body. He's sending out Paul as an apostle so that Paul will declare those, thing, declare those things to the Gentiles so the Gentiles will be gathered into the body and that all that body will be built up so that it will display the manifold wisdom of God, three-dimensional, right? And then in chapter 4 he says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body in Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So, God's summing all things up. He's putting all things together under Christ the head of the church. He's calling men to call the Gentiles and all the people that will be brought together to be that church. Then he's giving gifts to men. And he's gifting them to help the process of unleashing the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings in the church so that as the Holy Spirit unleashes the gifts as we live together among one another, as we're formed together into this body, that we will be fitted together and the rough edges will be ground off and will be perfected and will grow up in unity and faith. And so he gives gifts to men for this purpose. And then in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects unto, into him who is the head, even Christ, and from from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see how this, it's alive. It's growing. It's the summing up. God's building something. It's a demonstration. It's a display. Jesus Christ is the head. He's adding to the numbers. He's gifting men to see that the work gets done so that it all gets perfected and brought into a place where it's building itself up in love. And then we get to the second part of the book. The therefore, here's what you're going to have to do part. We've had the revelation of God's plans and purposes and now we go to his directives. And we see in chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. You have a whole pivotal change. Now, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. After that, the second part comes in about three sections. It's about not being like the Gentiles, then it's about authority in our lives, and then it's about the armor of God and being ready for war. And they're very interconnected. But we're going to be concentrating on the part about not walking as the Gentiles walk. And this was an odd thing for him to say to them, because why? Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Why was that odd for him to say to them? 
because they, most of them were Gentiles. And so he's you know, telling them, don't be yourself. Well, there's some truth in that. That's what he is saying. And we're going to read on to see how, what that means. So reading on from verse 17, he says, No longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Again, the connection to the whole first part of the book. We are members of one another. He's telling them that they have learned Christ, that they have been taught the truth that is in Christ Jesus, and that their former selves need to be laid aside, and that a new self in the likeness of God must be put on. The old self is being corrupted because of its accord with the lust of deceit. And this is true in the life of any people who are outside of God's particular graces or kindnesses. At that time, the people outside of God's particular kindness and grace would have been the Gentiles. And so it was understood that they weren't to walk as the Gentiles walk because before they had been excluded, but now... In the formation of this body, the church, the Gentiles had been called in. But they had been called in to be transformed and to be made something new. So we're supposed to put on a new self created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And we're supposed to lay aside falsehood. Now, If you read these verses, especially in verse 22, you realize that when he talks about the Gentiles, he talks about them having a particular characteristic. And that particular characteristic is that they are are corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. That's the very particular characteristic they have corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And if you were thinking of one word to actually characterize living as a Gentile, it would be living a lie, living in deceit. That's the modus operandi, that's the protocol, the practice. The formula of our lives outside of Jesus Christ is deceit. It is a lie. Romans chapter 1 says that the old self suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and exchanges the truth of God for a lie. This is the activity of those who are outside of Christ. But we are supposed to lay aside falsehood. We are supposed to put aside falsehood. If I told you I knew the name of a famous author whose middle name was Langhorn, don't say it if you know it, a famous author whose middle name was Langhorn, How many of you know who I'm talking about? Langhorn. That's amazing that there are like seven of you. Okay? 
Well, most of us don't know Langhorn by his real name primarily. We may be acquainted with it. We know him by his pseudonym. His pseudonym is Mark Twain, right? His real name was Samuel Langhorn Clements. But he didn't go by this name. He used an assumed name. An assumed name is a false name that an author adopts because his parents gave him the middle name Langhorn. Okay? But an assumed name is a false name. It's a lie. And if you look at what the Holy Spirit says to us here in Ephesians 4, when it talks about putting aside falsehood, it says literally to put aside pseudos, to put aside the pseudonym, to put aside the lie. Because our old selves are liars. We're filled with the corruption of deceit, the lusts of deceit, and we're liars. And so we're supposed to put this aside. Well, what do we lie about? Well, this morning we're talking about our lives together in the church because we're supposed to put aside the lies and put on the truth because we are members of one another. It's all in the context of this body that God builds. We have members' reception this morning and we have uh, baptism this morning, right? Adding to our number. And we're all part of one another. and We're, we're, we're supposed to put, this aside, put aside the lies. And so it's about being, the passage is about being fitted into the church and so we're, sp- we're told to speak the truth to our neighbor, but we have to be told this because our inclination is to still live like the old guy, like the Gentiles, and not to tell the truth about ourselves. And so we have to think about it. Well, process through it. I have to tell the truth to my neighbor. Now, who is my neighbor? Well, you are my neighbor. It's all the people that God puts me among as he places together the parts of his church, as he gifts men as he pours out his spirit on us and he puts us together. He's just assembling us into a dwelling in which he lives by his spirit. And so you are the neighbor that I'm supposed to tell the truth to. I am the neighbor you're supposed to tell the truth to. We're being fitted together into one body. And, but we still are tempted to tell lies and we still tell lies. We tell lies about who we are and we tell lies about who other people are. But typically, I think, honestly, in most cases, lies really, unless somebody has this, uh, what do they call that? Uh, Compulsive liars. They don't seem to be any reason why they lie, they just do. But generally, we're always lying to protect ourselves in some way, even if we're lying about somebody else, right? So we're lying about ourselves and we're lying about others. I don't want you to know the truth about me. You know, I don't want to use the name David and or Max Carell with you, what I want to use is a pseudonym. That's how I want you to know me. I actually worked to put one together. So I want you to hear what it is. Okay? This is my pseudonym. Ernest M. Godley. Ernest M. Godley. But I have one of those quirks that some of you have. I want you to pronounce my first name a very special way. And so I want you to say, Arnhest. Arnhest. Right? And on top of that, my friends call me Arnhe. Arnhe. Arnhe Godly. Right? 
And of course, my parents saddled me with that middle initial. It stands for mighty. Aren't he mighty godly? And this is the pseudonym that I want you to know me as. I want you to see me as this. I don't want you to know the truth. I want to portray a lie. I want to, it's uncomfortable. It's scary. It's difficult. We're being placed together in this place, and God is using it, and it's a little, it's a little difficult. You know, if you go into my office, and you see all the books on my wall, and what I want you to do is what? I want you to ask me, have you read all those? And I'll reply, what, Stephen? That's what pastors answer. Because we don't want you to know that we haven't even opened most of them. They're props. They're part of the pseudonym. Lies about ourselves. We'd rather be We'd rather that those people in the body of Christ positioned next to us not know that we're sinners, not know the truth about who we are. And even at times when it's, when it's just impossible for us to, to wiggle out of it with a statement like some of them twice, you know, we still do our best to wiggle out of it like somebody in a sleeping bag that's caught because the zipper's jammed at the top. And they're just, you know, you can imagine them squeaming and squirming and trying to slide their way out of it with their shoulder blades, Right? And that's how we are when we're finally in a position where we just, is there any way I can get out of what I just did or what I just said or who I am and them not really know me? But this is where we do allow ourselves to be known. That's what we're supposed to put away. We're not supposed to hold on to those things about ourselves, certainly not lies about others. You know, we think that the best way maybe to keep the attention off ourselves is to talk about other people. So we bear false witness about them. We lie, we gossip. It's slate of hand. Look over here. Look over here so I can feel safe over here. I don't want you looking at me. Right? But Paul says, no, no, no. You did not learn Christ this way. Well, the truth is some of us did learn Christ that way. And it's unfortunate. And if you learned Christ that way, I want to tell you that our goal, every goal we have here, you know, we stumble along at it as best we can, but every goal we have is to take that false Christ away from you and show you the real Christ, the one that Ephesians is talking about, the one that God put in authority over the church, the one that he's going to use to grow this body and display his magnificence. That's what we want you to know. So today we put aside falsehood and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. Maybe you need to make an assumed name for yourself like I did. Go to your small group and tell them your assumed name. And ask them to help you bury it. And you might say, well, I'll have a hard time making up an assumed name about myself. And my response to you would be what? Just ask your small group. They'll help you. Because they know you really well. They'll show you what it is. And then after everybody's got their assumed name, have a ceremony and burn the things or something. Decide that this is not what you're going to be in Christ. What is the truth? Well, the truth about me is that I am a Gentile, or at least I was recently, and I still act like one. 
quite often. And this has very little to do with my ancestry and almost everything to do with my behavior. But I am laying aside my old self, for he was a lie, and I am putting on a new self crafted in the image of God. You are performing this process on me because you are the church, and I am a member of you. And God gave you his Holy Spirit to do this to me. And God gave me his Holy Spirit to do this to you. It's the work. It's what we do. It's what we were put together for. Right? And so together we're being formed into a new creation, a new man. Christ is the head of the new man, and we are members of him individually and corporately. And the work is constant because I sin and you sin and we sin. Because I must repent and then you must repent and then we must repent. Because I must forgive and you must forgive and we must forgive. We are members of one another, members of a body being built up in love, preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And there are so many things in this formula that make the difference. The Holy Spirit, certainly. The Spirit of God lives in us. His Word, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, the summing up of all things, it's a powerful thing that God has done. It's, it's, a, it's on display to all creation. It's powerful. But what makes the difference in this verse that we're looking at this morning? The difference is made in that we lay aside falsehood and that we are living with the new man who is righteousness and holiness in the truth. That makes the difference. God has done a wonderful thing for you. Recently in staff meeting, we were reading about the Samaritan woman. We read in the staff meetings about the chapters prior to the readings that are done on the Sundays. And as we read them in the staff meeting, we make decisions about the sections of Scripture and how much we might read or might not read. And we make decisions about, uh, but, but, but we read them also for just devotion. And so we're reading devotionally, and almost every time there are just things that just jump out at us, like this week when we were reading in staff meeting, what jumped out? And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus keeps repeating that over and over in that chapter of John. And I will raise him up on the last day. What a wonderful promise when you just stop and think of Jesus saying that. Well, we were reading about the Samaritan woman and we got through that passage and I was struck by the singularity of, of something that happened in the, account, in the account with her. And so here Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well and she had she was with Jesus. I mean, incarnate, God incarnate there. She had a privilege that you and I have not had in that God incarnate was there and he, he, she literally heard the vibration of the created by his vocal cords in the air. She heard Jesus, right? That alone is something. The people who encountered him literally encountered him in that time. But not only that, but when Jesus talked to her, he, he did something for her that he didn't do for very many people at all that he, had, that he encountered. And that is, when he spoke to her, he actually declared himself. Do you understand? 
I who speak to you am he. He said that to her. I who speak to you am he. He didn't do that very often. He literally said, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. And so the woman, though, in the, in the conversation, she met with Jesus. He was somebody she didn't expect, but she, had, she was kind of ready for him. I'll get that in a minute. She was kind of ready for him being there. But she was, he was somebody she didn't quite expect right then. And so what does she do immediately? Well, she uses a pseudonym, doesn't she? Did you know she did? She used a pseudonym. She said, I am having no husband. Right? What she did is she presented herself as, she presented a lie. Now, it was kind of the truth, wasn't it? Because she didn't have a husband right then. It's kind of like most of them twice, some of them twice, right? But Jesus saw right through it. He knew what was true about her. And so she couldn't prevail with this lie. And what happened was, He declared himself to her, I who speak to you am he. She believes in faith. She hears him, but then she really hears him with a capital H. I heard him talk to me, but then I heard the Messiah. And she believes and has faith. Matthew Henry says a strange kind of comment about this woman. He says, she was big with expectation of the Messiah. And I don't know how to explain that because I don't think he meant she was pregnant with expectation of the Messiah. That doesn't fit right. The, the way I look at it is I think, the thing, the thing I think of is that uh, like when people are at the airport, you go to the airport, you watch people as they're waiting behind the, the gates for their family members to come off the plane, their loved ones that they haven't seen for a month, and they're just kind of big in expectation, Right? They're waiting because they're looking for somebody that they've wanted to see and wanted to be with. And this is how the woman was. She was waiting for the Messiah. She was surprised that she literally found him at the well. But she was ready for that because she was expecting him. So she goes and she brings her whole town. And the whole town comes out. And they see Jesus, and they hear Jesus, and they have the living water. And then pretty soon, you get to the account in chapter 9 of the man born blind. And the whole process of the man born blind, his story, the disciples say, who sinned, his parents or him? Jesus said, neither one, this is for the glory of God. Then he gets healed. Jesus doesn't really disclose who he is to the man. They get separated. The man gets called in by the religious leaders. The religious leaders want to oust him because they hate Jesus. And, he, and, and his response is, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I was blind and now I can see. I don't know what to say. I mean, how does somebody do that? Do you want to be his follower? And so they kick him out. They reject him because of his association with Jesus. And so what? The man comes around and he finds Jesus, and and he sees Jesus. He saw Jesus when Jesus healed him, but then Jesus reveals himself to him. He declares himself to him, and the man sees Jesus, capital S, and he follows him. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about all these characters that we think of from the scriptures. I was thinking about the woman at the well. I was thinking about the Samaritan people. I was thinking about the man born blind. I was thinking about Zacchaeus. Just, just 
go through your mind and list them all off, and can you imagine all of them going to the same particular church as they sat together? Can you imagine the work of God's Holy Spirit with them as you know what I'm saying? (laughs) They all had met Jesus. And all the pretense and all the lies just got worked through fast. It was done real fast. And they were connected to one another. Can you imagine what that service would be like and what it would be like to be in that kind of fellowship? You know, I, t- I, was, I, I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and I wanted to say my, uh, when my wife and I haven't seen each other for a while, I'm away or something, and so we'll come back together. And so I'll, I'll hug my wife, I'll hold her. And then there's music. There's music, and I know there's music because we start going like this. <laughs> right? And it's because there's a belonging, there's an, there's an identification, there's a, a common place, a reality, a knitting together that God has done in our lives that's, that's unlike any other thing. But it's the same way when we're together here. God takes us and he knits us together in such a way that we long to be with one another. We long to be together. It's, it's hard work. You know, being married to Annie is hard work. It's hard work as God perfects us in his church. It's hard work. She'll tell you it's hard work being married to me. You know it's hard work as God does this with us. But what ends up happening is it's very, very sweet. You know, Stephen and Tim, we're talking and we'll be together and we'll be talking and then all of a sudden something will happen in the church and one of us will look at the other one and say, can you believe we get to be here? Can you believe that this is our privilege? Can you believe it? You know, then we get kind of weepy because we're getting old. And then, can you believe that we have this? That God does this and we get to be a part of it. It's not only here, it's his church. It's a big thing. But it's here too. This is a particular expression of it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. And this is what God is doing. He's creating this. It's not not a new age thing. It's not an aura. It's his Holy Spirit filling his church the body that he's putting together under the head of Jesus Christ, he gifts it with gifts so that the fitting works better, and then he displays it to his creation, and he sums up everything of his redemptive history in it. You see? That's who we are. That's what we get to be a part of. And today we have people joining, and members coming to us, and someone being baptized, and what a joy that is. What a glorious thing that is. God has called us together. He's, he's called us to repentance. He's empowered us to turn from the world and to place our faith in the anointed one. He causes us to confess our sins again and again, and he causes us to confess this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the one, like the woman said. Could this be the one? Now we believe he is the one, the people said. And he fits us together in a unified body. You know Bob's house has been a part of this body for a long time. And a lot of that work has happened as God has used Bob's house to do this work of of bringing together the church and equipping her. And then men have left here and gone into other particular expressions of the church, and they've been blessed 
by what God did in perfecting men's hearts in Bob's house as the church was the mother to those men. Right? So here you are this morning and you're sitting next to the Samaritan woman and you're sitting next to Zacchaeus and you're sitting next to the man born blind and you're sitting next to, you pick out the character you want to pick out. That's who you're beside this morning. And you are those characters yourself. Yourselves. And realize what God is doing with us. What God is doing in us. And rejoice. And as we receive members and and as we uh, rejoice in Bethy's baptism, rejoice in the work that God is doing in us. Throw away the lying. Get rid of the pseudonyms. Get rid of it. It's just no good. First of all, people see through it anyway. And all it does is it inhibits us from actually growing up as we ought to so that we're unified and we come to the place we're supposed to come to in completion, in holiness and godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that you've given us in your church, your kindness to us, that your spirit fills us, that you form us together, that you give us Jesus Christ who is our head, that we are being built up into him, that we are putting on a new self that is formed in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. Father, we thank you, we praise you. This is your work. You are glorified in it. And when it's accomplished and when the final uh, body is Uh, when the last piece is put in place and when the time comes for Jesus to come and we anticipate it, we're big with expectation like the Samaritan woman. Lord, when that last piece is put into place, then Jesus will have all of it and he'll present it to you as a glorious body. And Father, what a day that will be. We give you thanks and we live in hope and faith. Give us faith as we live together, Father. Give us faith and cause us to be obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.